Professor Richard Wolf, uh, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Great to be here, Ben, and to talk with you again. Yeah, so uh, this is um, so your most uh, most recent book uh, is this uh, the uh, system, uh, the sickness uh, is the system. Uh, you want to tell me a little bit about uh, about that book and why you wrote it? Yeah, the the major thrust behind it was to move the conversation away from the endless list of particulars. You know, uh, let me give you an example. Since I'm an economist, one of the things we pay attention to are what is politely called the business cycle, uh, more honestly called capitalism's unshakable instability. Uh, so there have been three crashes in, the, in this century the so-called dot-com crisis of 2000, then the so-called subprime mortgage crisis of 2008, and now the COVID-19. Notice each of these crises is carefully named by something extrinsic to the economic system. Uh, for example, the, the, the dot-com, what was that about? Well, it was these dot-com companies that were coming onto the market, uh, had never made a profit in the history of the company, but the shares were selling for hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars each. And it was a kind of endless speculation. Um, and so the crash was blamed on that. Uh, then in 2008, it was lots of people who couldn't afford to buy homes had taken out mortgages. And true enough, within a year or two or three or four, they couldn't keep up with, uh, with the payments. And so we called it that. And now it's the, 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 the virus. This kind of thing always infuriated me because what's going on here is not innocent. Uh, it's not that innocently people are saying, oh, uh, let's link the economic downturn to whatever happened a few months before, a few months after. It's not innocent. It, it's <laughs> whatever the opposite of innocent is, guilty. Right. Guilty of is wanting to focus people's attention, and I'm going to overstate it, but not by much, on anything other than the system itself. And, you know, when it comes to this instability, 
capitalism as a system, and this point is made in the book, capitalism as a system, usually dated 300 years old, more or less, um, has wherever it has settled in as the dominant system, starting in England, spreading to Europe, then around, and eventually the whole world, wherever it has settled, every four to seven years, the thing crashes. I mean, you could set your watch by this. It's an average, true, so sometimes it lasts longer, sometimes shorter. But having a record like that for 300 years ought to have made people recognize that this is a structural intrinsic quality of the system and stop calling these regular crashes. By the way, the four to seven average comes yeah. from the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the official periodizing agency in this country. Um, and so we've had what we, we have 20 years in this century. We've had three crashes right on schedule every seven years, right in the average period there. So for me, the whole thrust of the book was to demonstrate that what ails us, what our problem is, and I use the metaphor of sickness because we're all wrapped up with COVID and all the rest, is the system. We have to finally talk what has been taboo, that we live in an economic system whose pluses and minuses, and it has both, whose mm -hmm. pluses and minuses are now tilting way over on the minus side so that we ought to ask the question that people have asked in every other economic system in the history of the world. At a certain point, people began to say, we can do better than the village economy we live in or the slave economic system or the feudal system. We've come to that point, I believe, in the West, not yet in places like China, India, Brazil, that, that's different. But in the West, where the capitalist system began, it makes a certain sense that it sputters out where it started, not yet where it migrated. And I think we ought to talk about that. And that's why I wrote the book, that our problem, our sickness, is a system. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about the alternative uh, to uh, to that system, because obviously, you know, we're living in a time when, um, you know, the dreaded S word, you know, socialism is uh, is has a little bit less of a taboo than than it had uh, in the the '90s or even like you know the uh, 2000s. Uh, but oftentimes, uh, what that means to people is a sort of um, you know, vague social democratic, you know, kind of idea that, you know, that we could have, uh, you know, bigger and, and more expansive social programs that, you know, that, that we could have some of what exists in places like Sweden and Norway, which I don't bring up to knock. I think that would be a huge step in the right direction. Uh, you know, but, um, but I think that oftentimes, uh, you know, people who, uh, sort of casually might tell pollsters that socialism sounds good, don't necessarily have anything more in mind than that. And even a lot of people who are committed socialists, uh, when when you really pin them down, you know, that they're, they're a little bit, um, you know, it's, it's you know, they, they've got a sense that this has got to stop, right? This is terrible, right? What we're living in right now, right. Uh, but much less of a well-developed sense of, uh, of what the, 
uh, the alternative uh, could could look like. I mean, concretely, you know, uh, you you talk a lot about uh, worker cooperatives, but I mean, if if we're trying to imagine an entire economy that that would be different, I mean, you know, what what does that look like? Sure, uh, but before I respond, and, and and the question's great, and I want to, I want to say something out of a kind of compassion for the American people more than almost any other country. You're absolutely right. The, you know, I'm a professor. I still teach in a university. I deal with young people in the you know late teens and twenties and thirties and all that all the time, and they are overwhelmingly critical of capitalism and positively inclined, more or less, uh, to what they call socialism. But it doesn't take more than 10, 15 minutes of conversation. And you're right. What I learned is what you just said. They know what they don't like, but they sure as hell do not have a clear idea of what this other is. They're, when they say they like socialism, it's really another way of saying, I don't like what this system is. I was led to believe this system would do this, this, and this. It didn't. I was led to believe that this could, could never happen in America. I see it all around me. It, I, I know that there's something bad wrong in our system. It, there must be something better. Uh, but the, the, the compassion I feel is the following. Yeah. In, in almost no other country is the following sentence true. Hmm. From 1945 until now, a period of 75 years, there has been a relentless uh, demonization of everything on the left. Uh, when I first started teaching, I was aghast. My family's European, so I, mm. I speak French. I, my father was born in France, stuff like that. I mean, I was born in the United States, but my folks are Europeans. If you go to Europe and you talk in any classroom and you ask students, you know, what's the difference between socialism and communism? Their hands go up and they give you an answer, right. more or less the right one. You do that in the United States, consternation. They couldn't begin, have no idea. When I first began teaching, I thought, wow, these are underdeveloped people. But that was, that was stupid of me. They weren't. We were very smart young you know, men and women. They were good students. So I had to ask, what's going on? And the answer is, after World War II, the, the wealthy in this country, the big businesses, they were horrified. And this history cannot be taught too often. They were horrified by what had happened between 1929 and 1945. Not only had there been the worst depression capitalism had ever seen, with unemployment rates, for example, the 1933 uh, was 25%, one out of four workers, which means every single working class family had at least one mother, father, cousin, uncle uh, unemployed. Uh, and remember, in those early years, there was no unemployment insurance. So if, if mom or cousin or Harry were unemployed, he or she became a burden on the rest of the people whose jobs were none too secure either. So it was a terrible crisis, and the American working class, to its credit, from my point of view, went to the left. They joined the CIO, greatest unionization drive in American history. They joined two socialists and one communist party, and the two socialists and the communists and the unions, who had lots of disagreements, worked together. They really did. 
the communists and the socialists were kind of the activists and brought people to the unions to join the union. And they, and they did this really well. And that was strong enough to get the New Deal, to go to the president and say, hey, you've got to do stuff for us that are suffering through this depression. And you better because we represent one heck of a lot of votes. And if you don't do it, you won't get the votes and you won't be president. I mean, they didn't have to put it quite so bluntly, but, but Roosevelt was a smart politician. He didn't have to spell it out. He got it. And he did it. He created Social Security. He created unemployment compensation, passed the first minimum wage, and gave 15 million people federal jobs. I mean, staggering. And the best part, who paid for all of this? It was a gargantuan expense at a time when the government had no money because the unemployment of the Depression meant that nobody paid taxes. He got it by raising the taxes on corporations and the rich. And what he didn't get in taxes from them, he basically forced them to lend to the government so they could do it. By 1945, this, which horrified the wealthy, they had never been taxed like this before. They had never been treated like this. They were used to being the kings. They were losing wealth that was being basically redistributed downward to the mass of the man. You can see the lines if you ever look at the history of the distribution of wealth and income. And then to cap it all off, in the war, in World War II, the United States was allied with the Soviet Union. I remember seeing a photo, never left my mind, of a, of a post office. At the bottom of the photo was the little window, you know, where you go to buy your stamps and put your packages. And above it was a picture. It, it, it looked a little like a photo, but it had been doctored. And there was Uncle Sam, you know, with his hat and the stripes and all of that, arm in arm with somebody labeled Uncle Joe. <laughs> Stalin, because we were the bosom buddies we right. were fighting the Japanese on one side, the Germans on Italians on the other. Uh, if I were a member of the of the elite in this country, I would have been freaked by 1945. Tax like never before, allies with the Soviet Union. Whoa, you know. And after the war, they then made a de decision, these folks. And I take my hat off to them. They did what I'm about to describe very well very effectively. They understood the problem wasn't Roosevelt. The problem was the pressure from below that made Roosevelt stop being a centrist Democrat, which is what he was when he ran for mm -hmm. office in 32, and to become what we would nowadays call a progressive or some other word like that. Uh, they knew that it wasn't him. He was, after all, from an old American wealthy family, blah, blah. They knew it was the coalition, and they went to work to smash that coalition. And they did one heck of a job. They started with what they determined was the weakest link, the Communist Party. They were recast, rebranded. They were not the militants who went out there and got people to join unions. They were the evil agents of a foreign conspiracy to take over the world with all the music and drama uh, you could generate this. As soon as they had wiped out the Communist Party, which they did, they arrested a bunch, they deported a bunch, they terrorized everybody about it. They went around the country and they said to everybody, you know, the socialists, they're just like those communists. They just spell it differently. 
And that's why my students didn't know the difference. Because for those 75 years, communist, socialist, Marxist, anarchist, terrorist, I mean, it's all one mush. It's all one synonym or nearly so. And Americans aren't stupid. That's what they were taught. That's what they were taught from every corner. And so you kind of got rid of the left and they don't understand the different socialisms and it's not their fault. So having said that, let me answer your question. Socialism is a global tradition. It's been around now for a good, depending on how you count, at least a hundred years, maybe more. And it has spread all over the world. Wherever capitalism went, socialism, like its shadow, went along with it. So as capitalism spread, so did socialism. In a hundred years, the ideas, for example, of Karl Marx, who's still the single kind of major theoretical, not the only, but the major theoretical figure here. Um, when you have a, an idea that spreads globally in a century, you're talking something very rare in human history. You know, Christianity took several centuries. Islam took several centuries and so on. Marxism and socialism, they went very fast. And when you go very fast, into countries with very different economic, political, cultural backgrounds, you know what you get? Lots of different interpretations. They all read the book by Karl Marx, but what it means, how they understand it, varies. This is not a weakness or a flaw. This is the way it is. Uh, just like the Bible has been interpreted in countless ways or any other major piece of, of literature or writing that we have. So, End result, there's lots of different Marxisms, there's lots of different socialisms, and there always were. Last, last step of this. Um, in, the 20, in the 19th century, as socialism gets going, one of the early debates uh, that takes place mm. is how do we get, how do we get from capitalism to socialism? Socialism was still relatively vague. It was, you know, probably not markets because a lot of people didn't like markets. And uh, a lot of people were critical of private property. They had a historical memory of the feudal era when you didn't have much private property and so on. But the urgent question, as they began to grow and as more and more people said they were interested, just like now the urgent question is, what exactly is it? The urgent question there wasn't that so much, but how do we get there? And unless you could answer the question, how we get there, people became very impatient with a lovely description. Marx mm -hmm. and Engels, for example, made fun of what they called the utopian socialists. These people that write beautiful picture books for us of what a happy, decent, egalitarian society would look at. And they were very impatient with these kinds of things because it's, it's you know, for them, it's pie in the sky. And if you can't show how we're going to get there, then this is almost like a torture. You're, you're dangling something lovely, but you're refusing to answer the question how we get there. Long story short, the 19th century became over, in my judgment, over-focused on that question. And here's how they answered it, and you'll see the logic here. The answer was working people are the majority. 
capitalists are a minority. If you think of the capitalist as ultimately the employer, well, the employers are always a minority, and the employees are always a majority, larger, smaller, but in the end, unmistakable. So if we can win, we socialists, if we can win universal suffrage, everybody gets the vote, well, here's then the strategy. Go for universal suffrage, which they did in the 18th and 19th centuries, get it, organize a political party, and take over the government by your vote. If you, if you get stymied in your vote effort, well, then you can make a revolution. And they had nice debates about the revolution versus the electoral route. But either way, it was the majority brushing aside the minority of employers and the state, revving the state. Once the workers had the state, then the combination of the workers as the majority, the state as an institution in their hands, that would be the way, that would answer the question, how we overthrow private enterprise markets because the government, long story short, socialism became identified as it still is in many people's mind with the government, grabbing the government, winning the government, getting the government to intervene, getting the government to make capitalism less unequal, less unstable, less of all the things we don't like and move us. The best example then is Scandinavia. Sure, in Scandinavia, and by the way, in many other parts of Western Europe, that's what socialism has meant for most of the last century and a half. Even those who said they followed Marx had this focus. The state was the key social institution. You would contest for the state, either peacefully with elections and all of that, or if you had to, with a revolution uh, in, the, in the tradition of the American and French and other revolutions, often you would justify doing it revolutionary, seizing the state, because you had been blocked, often illegally, from going the peaceful route. That's, for example, what, what Stalin and Trotsky and Lenin uh, argued was why they made the decision they did. In any case, Socialism became associated for better and for worse, and I'll explain that in a moment, with this focus on the state. The state as the magic agency, the way the working class would mobilize itself to make the transition to that better world, which could look like those utopian pictures or something else. They were sure that once the workers were the state, they would know what to do. They make mistakes, but they would know kind of what to do. And so when they're, I mean, they're very practical. When the Russians make a revolution, what do they do? They grab the state. They, they overthrow the old czarist state and they establish a new state. And then they think about what is the state now going to do? And, you know, when Fidel wins in Cuba or Mao in China, it's always kind of the same how are we going to mobilize the state, which we control because we've made a successful election run or a revolution, and what does the state have to do? And this resulted in good things and bad things. The good thing is socialism grew. 
Look, every country on earth has socialists in it now. Socialist newspapers, socialist political parties, socialist trade unions. I mean, socialism has nothing to, to be ashamed about. It has grown into a vast social movement all over the world. That's the plus. And it has won all kinds of concessions. Americans don't know, but the basic idea of social security, that comes from socialists who fought for that in many countries and brought it here. Same thing with a minimum wage. If you pick up the Communist Manifesto, the advocacy for a minimum wage is right there. You, you don't, you don't, you don't, these ideas didn't come from heaven and they didn't come from the trade union movement. They came from the socialist movement, most of these things. Uh, and people kind of half know that. So the government is going to do these good things. Here's the bad side. If you give the government that much economic power, you run a terrible risk, which the 20th century taught us. That power can be used politically, ideologically, and you can end up with a, a, a distortion, a caricature of what you had in mind. You have a government that becomes self-reproducing as a new kind of elite, what the Yugoslav thought, thinker Milovan Gilas called, you know, the new class. It isn't the people who own the means of production. It isn't the employer. It's the governmental apparatus, the bureaucracy. Trotsky was famous for making an argument like that. What that led is to socialists beginning to criticize and question the focus on the state. Now, there were many socialists who didn't buy that criticism. They've stayed with it. If I introduce you to the, you know, let me give you an example. Um, the country, I'm picking one that I know most Americans don't know. And I remember doing this on, uh, on Michael's show too. Uh, mm -hmm. The government of Portugal, right? Yeah. Everybody knows what Portugal is. Well, in 2016, there was an election, like always, and the election was won by three political parties that formed a coalition government. They ran again four years later in 2020, and they were easily reelected. So they are the government as I'm speaking. The largest member is the Portuguese Socialist Party. The second largest member of the coalition is the Portuguese Communist Party. And the third is the Portuguese Green Party. I mean, this is a Donald Trump nightmare. <laughs> and if you don't, if any of you watching or listening to this program, if you didn't know that, well, welcome. There's a reason you don't know that, that it isn't explained to you, because it's awkward to explain that this is the government of Portugal, that this isn't unusual, that these political parties have been active in Portugal for many years, are well known, and won the election twice now, okay? There are plenty of socialists who still think that what socialism is, is the government coming in and softening the hard, tough edges of capitalism by uh, redistributing income and wealth through the tax system, uh, providing free education, free medical care, free limited rent housing, all those things which many socialists have done. But there are many more of them, and I'm one of these others, who say, no, that's a mistake. What, you, what you're not doing there is what, in fact, you can get from Marx's work.
at least I do, which is an argument that you must change the organization of the workplace. If you don't do that, you've left in place the employer-employee relationship. And that's the core of capitalism. When Marx works this out, he explains, slavery is a different system. There, the key relationships are master-slave, one of whom owns the other one. There are no wages to be paid. There's not, none of this apparatus of capitalism. Likewise, in feudalism, the two key relationships, lord and serf. And again, there are no wages, there none of this apparatus. There's no accumulation. They don't calculate a profit, none of that. Capitalism displaces slavery and feudalism. And it replaces them with something very different, the relationship of employer to employee, a relationship in which one of them, the worker, sells to the other one, the employer, his capacity to work. And the employer buys that capacity by paying a weekly or monthly wage. Okay, this is very interesting. But if that's the core of capitalism, then you've not gotten rid of capitalism if you replace the private employer with a state official, because you've still got the same relationship. It's just somewhat different people. It's as if you thought you didn't have capitalism anymore because you replaced the employer who was a male with a female or an employer who was white with a person of color and so on. Those are important changes. They have consequences. No one is denigrating them, but you haven't changed the relationship. And what relationship is it? The one that defines capitalism for this kind of socialist. That's why those of us who reason this way say, and again, make a long story short, the critique of the Soviet Union of China and all of that it's not that they didn't do some good things and achieve some good things. They did. And it's not really that they did bad things that we have to avoid. That's also true. But for us, the key thing is they didn't question, challenge, or transform that relationship of employer, a small group of people, dominating a mass of people. The claim that the revolutionaries in America and France made, that if you overthrow feudalism and you bring in capitalism, you'll get with it liberty, equality, fraternity, democracy. They were dreamers. They hoped for that, I think sincerely. But capitalism never delivered those things. It can't. That's what the Marx, that's Marx's insight. He asked himself 50 years after the French Revolution, when he's a young man, why did those things we all loved, liberty, equality, fraternity, democracy, why don't we got it? He looked around mid-century, 19th century Europe, and he saw what you can find in the novels of Dickens or in the novels of, of, of a lot of those other contemporaries. Not equality, not fraternity, not democracy, not caricatures of them, if even that. And he asked the question, why not? And I think the answer he gives that I learned from him they didn't change the relationship. So what employer-employee is, is another version of the domination of a minority over a majority. Not the lords over the serfs, not the masters over the slaves, but the employers over the employees. 
And the conclusion, socialism is the end of any of those dichotomies. No more of a minority, the democratization of work. We're all together in the workplace, in the enterprise. One person, one vote. We decide democratically what gets produced, what technology is used, where the production occurs, and what is done with the output that we've all helped to produce. This is what, for me, the promise of socialism was and is, and this is way beyond anything that you read, any recipe for what the state should do. Yeah, so I mean, this the state in in your conception uh, still has to. Um, I mean, you can't avoid yeah. the state, right? You like, right. like like you do have to win political power uh, if you're going to to achieve a society where you've changed that relationship. Uh, because you know, because right now, um, you know, the the state props up capitalism in a thousand ways, uh, and and you know, you'd have to change that. Uh, I I also wonder, you know, if you know every every capitalist economy that that exists right now. I mean, even though there are examples of very successful, you know, worker-owned firms that you know that we've talked about before. Uh, there, you know, in, in every capitalist economy, you know, this is a, a tiny percentage of uh, of the the economy, and to start to change that, it seems like you'd have to do things like, um, you know, maybe take banks into public ownership so you could get them to to start giving out lo- you know, Absolutely. loans or grants to. Absolutely, but l- l- let me push back at you just a bit. Sure. Yeah. In the trend. We don't have that many transitions that we know enough about to draw some lessons. But if we have any, then the transition out of feudalism into capitalism is relatively recent historically. And we can turn there. And Marx himself did. If you read Marx's Capital, Volume 1, the whole last section is about that transition. Very important for him. Okay, here's what I would argue. You have a... Europe is the classic place for all of this, European feudalism, medieval time, Middle Ages, whatever you want to call it. And we have an economy of lords and serfs. And the lords have all the power. They control everything. The serfs have to deliver a portion of what they produce. The word for that is rent. That's where the word comes from, and so on and so on. And then that system, for all kinds of reasons we don't need to go into, begins to break down. Serfs, angry at the pressure that's added to them, run away. Where the heck are they going to run away to? Well, they basically run to two places. One is into the woods, because there's heavy forests in Europe. And there they become what we celebrate as Robin Hood. They live off stealing from everybody else, uh, which is why the sheriff is always on it. The other place they go to is the the town, because the town is already becoming a place where new relationships, not known in the rural feudal backwater, are beginning to shape up. What are these relationships? Well, think of it this way. A peasant, a serf, arrives running away from an unpleasant back. By the way, this leaving of of dangerous... uh, inhospitable, unlivable rural conditions. That's been going on to this day. 
those poor Central Americans grouped on the other side of the Texas border, they're just the latest incarnation of this process, which is very old. Marx goes through it. These ex-serfs arrive in the city. They've got no way to live. They've, they're no longer connected to the land, so they don't have a piece of land. Uh, they, they have what they're carrying on their back. They've got no place to sleep, nothing to eat. They're desperate. Where are they going to go? In the towns, there are merchants, people who live by buying something at one price and selling it at a higher price, and they keep what's in the middle. That's what a merchant has always done and been. You all know if you go to the bodega and you get a, a bag of potato chips, that that person who sells it to you paid less to the wholesaler for that bag of chips than you're paying him, and he lives off the difference. So they go to the merchant and they basically cut a deal. Look, I'm desperate. I'm going to die if you don't give me some money. And I know you're not going to do it unless I do something for you. Is there something I can do for you? Yes, says the merchant. I'm going to put you in a workshop. I'm going to bring you the raw material. You're going to make this thing. And that's cheaper for me when I resell it than if I go and buy that from somebody else. In that little arrangement, based on two people figuring out how to survive in the interstices, you might say, in the in-between spaces of feudalism, those are the first employer-employee relationships. And they develop. And at that early stage, they're episodic. They don't last very long. The, the feudal lord can roar into the city, kill those people, or, or spread them around, disperse them. Uh, they can be overthrown. Uh, they can get sick and die. I mean, hundreds of things happen. But you know what slowly happens? It happens in this city and then in that one. And then there's a bit more of them. And the word goes back into the countryside. There's a place you can run away to, the city. You know, like, like slaves ran away to the north from the American South to escape that class structure. And eventually these groups will get large enough that they begin to say, hey, why don't we get a piece of the government around here, make our lives much easier, easier for us to grow our businesses, easy for us to start a business. That's exactly what's happening with co-ops around the world. They're, they're like mushrooms where capitalism isn't working real well. Desperate people are figuring out, let's try this. I like to tell people about this um, famous law in Italy, because I think it illustrates it so nicely. It's called the Marcora Law. It was passed in Italy in 1985. The legislator was named Marcora. And here's the law. It's still on the books in Italy. If you become unemployed in Italy, you've got two options. The first option is to get a weekly check, sort of like we do in this country, your unemployment check. But you have an, a plan B. You can choose a different thing. If you can get at least nine other unemployed Italian workers to join you, the group of you, at least 10, it could be more than 10, and you go to the government and you say, we want plan B. What's plan B? The government will give you your entire unemployment compensation all 50 weeks, or however many weeks you're eligible for, I'll give it to you in a lump sum right now. You can have it all. And each of you can have it all on one condition. 
You have to use it as startup capital for a worker. That was won by the left in Italy, and it became popular, and so it's still on the books. And one of the reasons Italy has more co-ops than other countries in Europe, because they have that law. Okay, that's one way to do it. There are other ways. Here in the United States, you might be surprised. What we have is now a generation of 60 to 70-year-old people. I'm going, to, I'm going to make up a couple and describe them to you because they're, it's typical. Hmm. This couple are, are 60 years old. 40 years ago or 30 years ago, somewhere in, say, Wisconsin, they started a little business, husband and wife. And it grew, and they did well, and they grew in their little town of whatever, Wisconsin. And by now, they have 200 employees, every one of whom they know, because they're people from the area who were hired, and this one was the cousin of that one, and all the rest. And now they're 60-something years old. Their children don't want to run that business. Their children have gone up to other parts of the country, other kinds of work and jobs. What are they going to do with their business? Well, they could close it. Well, they don't want to do that because that's a disaster for 200 local families who are going to lose their job. The local community is going to lose its tax payments. They don't want to do that. They could sell it to another company. Same problem. They could go public and issue shares. Still the same problem. What are they going to do? And guess what? Onto the scene arrive people like me or others who do this kind of work and say to them, we got another option for you. You can sell your business to your workers and convert it into a worker co-op. That keeps the business going. It keeps those people in their jobs. It keeps the community reaping the tax benefits from an ongoing business. Everybody is better off. There are even states in the United States where the tax laws are written that the person selling the business, the couple, will have more after-tax revenue by selling to their workers than if they sold to another um, enterprise or something like that. So that's happening in the country. There have now been banks, several of them, that have made loans to workers to enable them to buy and convert their enterprise. Because those loans worked, because they were paid back, these banks are now willing to do more of that. It isn't as novel as it was 30 years ago when this stuff started. There are even specialized firms in the United States that will help anybody interested in this find their way to such a lender uh, to make build a relationship. In other words, it's a kind of business that can grow depending on how friendly and how facilitating the environment uh, is. And my suspicion, and this may be of interest to you, Ben, mm. is that the political future here is already visible. These co-ops, and by the way, there's a, there's a federal, U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops. They have a, websites, and they help each other, and they have classes and conferences. All of that's being that's already done. Here's what I suspect is going to happen. As these co-ops grow, and again, notice the parallel with earlier capitalism coming out of feudalism. They are going to discover that there are hundreds and thousands of laws 
and regulations that have been developed over the years of the United States and in every other country that are there because capitalists got those laws, subsidies for them, tax breaks for them, uh, school curricula designed to get the workers ready to go into the, and they're gonna raise a political demand. We want that too. We don't want anything extra, but we want a government that gives us in the worker co-op sector, all of the help and benefits you have been giving for centuries to the capitalists. We're here, get used to it, if I can steal somebody else's slogan, right? And when they start demanding and people say, no, I'm not gonna do that, because we, we have two political parties in this country, both of whom are enthusiastic supporters of capitalism and nothing else, they're gonna recognize, here we go now, they need a political party. That's what capitalists did. They created the parliaments and the political parties to control those parliaments as a way to move around the king, who eventually was a figurehead, who, who lost all real power, ending up like uh, the Queen of England today. You know, this is a piece of theater. This is not a serious political issue. They overcame the old politics, they created a new thing, the political party. And my guess is you're going to see in the years ahead, political parties that emerge, maybe calling themselves socialist, maybe not, that'll vary with the culture. But what they're gonna be doing is saying, it, you, the worker co-op, must be our base. You are gonna persuade your members, your shoppers, your customers, to vote for us. Why? Because we're going to enhance the flow of money, the flow of legislation that will allow you to grow. And this is a very not, this is exactly what the political parties did for the capitalists and vice versa. We're going to do it now and we're going to move bigger and bigger. There's a place in Italy, a province called Emilia Romagna. It's the area around the northern city of uh, Bologna. Um, and for many years now, they've had an economy, 40% of which is worker co-ops. So it's very unusual that worker co-ops are that big a part. They are established. They are respected. The local university in their business school teaches courses on how to run a capitalist business, but they also teach courses on how to run a cooperative business because they have to. They are 60, 40, capitalist worker co-op. They've worked all of these things out. And a lot of these lessons are transferable with adjustments to the conditions in the United States. I see all of this coming. How soon, how fast. I'm sure there's things I'm not seeing that I should. But I see a trajectory suggested by how capitalism came out of feudalism. Well, I certainly hope so. Uh, but... Um... Want to uh, switch gears a little bit uh, for the uh, the last uh, the last part before I let you go, and uh, talk um, you know and, and talk about something uh, personal for a second, which is that uh, a, a big part of of how I know you. I mean, I think we met uh, very briefly at that conference in Idaho in in two thousand eighteen. Uh, is uh, is through our, our mutual friend uh, Michael Brooks, uh, who. Um, uh, passed away a year ago uh, to uh, tomorrow, 
and uh, you know want to uh, talk. You know, I'm going to talk a little bit later in the show about uh, you know about some of you know some of his contributions, some of what made him so you know so good at what he what he did. Uh, and, and I was just wondering, you know, I know that he for many conversations, you know, I mean, I, I, I know that he always really enjoyed, you know, having you on the show, you know, meeting you for lunch, just talking to you. And, and, uh, and, and he really, you know, I remember he was very excited the first time you came on, on, uh, on TMBS. Uh, and, and I think you, I think you had a big, um, you know, influence on him. So I, I was just wondering, you know, if, if you had any thoughts you wanted to share about Michael before you left. Absolutely. Um, an enormous loss. And, and, and I'd like to say a few words why I think so. Um, when he first invited me, he was, well, let, let me turn it around. There are people, many of whom were influenced directly by him, who are now producing podcasts or a variety of, but he was in a way a pioneer. He did something that I found extraordinary. He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't play games. He went right to the, to the, to the taboo material, and that's what he wanted me to talk about. That's what he wanted to talk about. And he proved, maybe to himself, but certainly to me, that there was an audience for this that, frankly, I didn't know existed. I couldn't believe the first time we're in the middle of a discussion of the things in the United States. Okay, I, I, I get there's now an audience for criticism of capitalism. And then he switched and talked about a struggle. I don't remember either Latin America or Africa. Very important, but Americans don't do that. I couldn't believe it. He went in detail. He wanted his audience be confronted with himself, often with a guest who knew a lot about that particular situation, had studied it, or maybe came from there, and he would intersperse. This was spectacular. This was something I thought I would see maybe someday in the future, if I'm still around, uh, this kind of a really broad-based, intelligent, recognition that we're citizens of the world and that what happens in Africa and what happens in, in Asia is very important to us. And if we spend the time, we'll figure out what the linkages are and the import. This was, and then I would meet with, he started, we're lucky. We lived, we both lived in New York City. Uh, so getting together for a cup of coffee was you know, practically easy. He had a coffee shop near Union Square in New York City, uh, which is where I lived, uh, that, that he loved. So it was really particularly convenient for me. And we had many meetings in this coffee shop where he would talk. I had not met a person. He had well-developed plans. He helped me to begin to think about this kind of planning of how this program is going to grow, how it's going to evolve, how we're going to get able to say things we didn't feel we could say two years ago. But now it's looking like, but how do we do it? So we don't want to spook anybody. We don't want to overdo it. We don't want to go. And I was talking to somebody who was strategically teaching me how to think in a planning way. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. We shared a basic political affinity, I'm not on every point, but more than enough uh, to make these very productive. And we were 
when he died, we were planning things to do together, um, that we could have programs together, that he would come on my program, which he did, and I would go on his, but we would also try to begin to build on what he had done, what we had done together, because the audience for it, it was there. He knew it, and he was able to show it to me. So I think he was, it's, I don't know what the words are quite to say it, but I think he was a kind of pioneer in this new sort of celebration of leftist perspectives on a whole range of issues without the barriers. You know, I'm a victim of American higher education. I you know, went to college and graduate school and all that stuff with those absurd boundaries, you know, here is the economics department, here's history, here's political science, here's literature. That's horrible. That's a terrible, that's not good education at all. What we really need is to see how these things interact. And it, he was into that. He was ahead of his time in that. And he helped me break out of these kind of blinder separations. Uh, that was one of the benefits. We used to talk about that a lot, uh, comparing notes on, how we had found our way to a position that recognized how damaging that was uh, to intellectual development, particularly on the left, because it's, it, we need to show people who will come at life through literature or music or who knows what, that, that we have something to talk about together, even those of us that are in other areas, whether it be logic or philosophy or history, that these are not compartmentalized career mechanisms, which is the way I was taught, but they're really things that ought to be talking to each other, not with some rubric interdisciplinary, no, 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 as the norm, you know, of the thing. So I miss him terribly. I did the conversations, particularly in the last year of his life, um, were very, very fruitful for, for me, helped in my work. Um, I think he would have gone on to be really one of those people that, that everyone recognizes has some special quality in how he puts things together that enables people to hear each other and connect. Uh, remarkable. Remarkable. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Ben, and I hope we can do it again in the future. I'm certain that we will. All right. Thank you All so right. much. Bye. Take care. All right, uh, that was Professor Richard Wolf. Uh, you should uh, check out uh, his uh, his most recent uh, book, uh, which is uh, "The Sickness uh, Is the System: When Capitalism uh, Fails uh, to Save Us uh, from Pandemics or Itself." Uh, so, as uh, you've probably noticed, we're doing something a little bit different with the uh, the format tonight. Uh, for a couple reasons, part of what, one of which was that uh, Professor Wolf uh, had to, because um, of his schedule, had to come on right at eight. Another of which is that uh, that Kale uh, is on vacation this week. But the main one of which is that I want to devote the bulk of the show today. Uh, it's probably going to be a little bit longer than than usual. We might not go to uh, the post game uh, for patrons until ten or a little later. Uh, but uh, I want to uh, I want to play some clips uh, that I've put together um, of basically you know this is 
some of my favorite conversations, you know, that I had with Michael uh, going back to uh, the conference where we originally met uh, in uh, Idaho that I referred to with, uh, with professor Wolf uh, and the, the talk I gave there, the first one of these, uh, he's, uh, he's, I'm giving a lecture and he's kind of interjecting and doing his thing. And then we, you know, end up having a good discussion in the Q and a, uh, to some of you know the discussions that I remember most fondly for various reasons from TMBS to also a couple of clips that you know I'm not in I just like them uh, because they they represent some of the things that Michael was was so good at and um, you know and, and I really like being able to to rewatch those and uh, and re-experience some of those so I'm gonna uh, play uh, play some of those uh, and then I'm gonna come back in uh, for uh, just a few minutes. Uh, at uh, at the end to uh, to say a few words and kind of summation, and then we're going to go to the post game with Joshua Con Russell. Um, and I should uh, should also say because I'm not going to do any of the normal plugs at the end of the show that uh, next week I'm uh, going to have uh, uh, Nathan uh, Robinson uh, from Current Affairs and also the great Gene Bajalan on. Uh, we're going to do a um, all an episode uh, the same way that we've done for Sam Harris. We did our Sam Harris is uh, wrong about everything episode uh, exaggeration, maybe, but you know, very close. Uh, and our uh, Jordan Peterson is wrong about everything. We felt bad that we hadn't done Peter done uh, Ben Shapiro yet. So we're doing our Ben Shapiro is wrong about everything episode with Nathan and Jean uh, next, uh, next week. And uh, the, uh, the, the patron episode uh, for, uh, for this week is going to be, um, a conversation between me and uh, Jacobin uh, staff writer, uh, Luke uh, Savage uh, about uh, James Carville's uh, extreme wrongness. So that hasn't been recorded yet, but that'll go out for patrons on uh, Thursday. So with, with all of that uh, out of the way, uh, I want to um, show. Uh, when I was originally doing this, the temptation to make fun of Peterson a lot more than I'm doing right now was almost overwhelming. Uh, I found a passage in Maps of Meaning uh, where he's talking about a dream he had about his beautiful cousin, which is the funniest thing that I've ever read. Oh, could you send that to me? That's yeah. that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> we'll do a dramatic That will be tonight. helpful for my work. Okay. But to the extent that you can reach out to Peterson fans, I think one way to do that is just by asking them questions like this one. Like, think about Andrew McVicker from the New York Times profile. To review, Andrew McVicker, 45, a waiter. So, here's the question that I think we should be asking the Andrew McVickers of the world, and we'll end on this thought. How's that economic hierarchy working out for you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, this this is a little bit off track, but what I'm confused by, and as you say, he's not argumentation and coherence is in his thing. But when you there's a really interesting contradiction in his work, and I wonder if yeah. maybe there's a way of picking out fans in either of these two directions, although it might not necessarily help us. Sure. With a left perspective, but it seems to me that like on one hand. 
if you're obsessed with a certain type of social cohesion as represented by like monogamy mm -hmm. and traditional family arrangements and stuff like that, there is a kind of more of this in the UK basically, but there are these like Catholic conservatives oh, who, yeah. unlike people in the United States, are actually willing to say like markets need to be regulated because we actually recognize that unlimited capital flow and deregulation is going to necessarily, like, and this is a tense thing for us on the left, right? Because sure. some of these social advances that are correct and a benefit of capitalism, but let's be real, like they're not happening because people are protesting, yeah. they're happening because like because the market demands that more people be in the workforce, that there more be, you know, liquid movement and capital and services and people. Yeah. So that's, and then that's why on the flip side, someone like, you know, Zygmunt Bauman, who's a really good old school Marxist, yeah. can write some critiques of this stuff that conservatives cannot at, like, yeah, he's right, there's sure. no community, there's no, so, Okay, so there's one part that he's appealing to with that stuff. And then it's like, if he had an actual project, then he would be a sort of right-wing critic of capitalism. But then he does, he's like, okay, well, everything's disrupted, we're not coherent, we're not in community anymore, and we're not traditional, so what you need to do is show up to, like, I'll be snarky for a second. We yeah. did a whole segment once on how, like, you know, it's like, well, you know, if you look at the DNA helix, it's really like, you know, it's, it's Young talked about this, and and then, which is why you should, you should show up five minutes early for work. <laughs> like, everything is actually just like, here's how you compete better yeah. in a system which actually will never, ever, ever lend itself or uh, support the maintenance of structure he wants. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a great point. Uh, I think that it would, like, yeah, I mean, so clearly there there is this tension uh, within conservatism that uh, capitalism is the great destroyer of tradition. I mean, the first few pages of the Communist Manifesto are sort of basically prose poetry about that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Marx is celebrated it to a point, although, you know, not But it's also super brutal. Yeah, so like some of it really isn't good. Yeah, like quite people a actually should be able to. Yeah, quite a bit work not good. Yeah, and community and yeah. Yeah, I mean, like it really comes out like in after um, after the uh, 2016 election, a lot of uh, sort of never Trump conservative types at the National Review uh, decided that to start, you know, like in their disgust about what had just happened. A lot of these people reconciled themselves more or less to Trump later, but they're disgusted right. about what had happened. They started talking about white working class people in the industrialized areas more or less the way the National Review has always talked about black people. You know? Oh yeah. yeah, that was their pivot. They're trash too. Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it got to a point where I, I, I pretty much thought the National Review was going to start doing you know, some phrenology charts to you know, <laughs> show that you know people on the coast weren't descended from the same you know, ancestors as you know people uh, people in Michigan. Uh, but and in some of these articles where they were like waxing brutalistic about you know how these these people who you know are just stupid and it's their own fault they're poor and all that stuff they started talking about how you know. Like there were some of these writers in the National Review who started talking about, well, why don't they? Just, you know, it's ridiculous. They they have nobody to blame for themselves. It's just cultural poverty. They should just pick up and like just move across the country, just find where the jobs are and move there. And 
that's something really, really weird about the idea that conservatives going to advocate that, that you know, yeah. everybody should just pick up like the families and the grapes of wrath and you know, just, just mass migrate across the country, you know, that we should, that there should be just this constant nomadic search for where the jobs are, because if you care about things like families, rooted communities, you know, that, that might like revolve around neighborhood churches, and the kinds of things you would expect conservatives to like, right? right? You really can't get that. And I think that is a real tension point in Peterson specifically, uh, because I don't think that he could he could really make that that pivot to sort of the um, the crunchy conservative critique of capitalism. Because if he did, then he'd have to kind of stop celebrating the Joseph Campbell mythic quest up through the ranks of the economic hierarchy right, right. in the way that uh, it, which is kind of the whole point. Right. So how? Yeah. No. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Strategically, I mean, I uh, I think Brooks and I have different answers on this actually, but um, how do you play off of that tension without? Platforming concern, and I say this as a person who does it because I'll, I'll talk on Peter Hitchens exactly on that point. Like that there's these these Catholic reactionaries, and if you if you fight Peterson with their arguments, it's actually easier to hit him than with ours. Sure, um, but at what point? I mean, like, how, where do you how do you use that strategically? Is what I'm asking. Like, how can you actually? Play that out because we're not those guys either. We don't actually think that like sure we could even we don't even think it's possible that you could go back to like national like normal traditional family norms of the 19th century invented traditions. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know if uh, Mike wants to respond to that also because uh, I'd be curious about his thoughts. But I'm I guess I would say that if the goal isn't to make Jordan Peterson fans. Uh, Chris and Peter Hitchens fans, right? Like that's 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 not um, you know it's not totally clear to me that that's you know that's uh, got better. a move that's forward or at least very much forward. Um, then I'd say that there's there's a there's a way to do it where uh, you you take part of that argument, right? So which is kind of pointing out that there's this big contradiction at the heart of a lot of this stuff. But just because there's a contradiction at the heart of something, that doesn't by itself tell you anything about where you go to resolve it. That if you um, see, now I can do my logic schmuck thing. So uh, in the, if, you, if you have, you know, reductio ad absurdum <laughs> argument, uh, say it's Latin even, you know, that's how logic schmucky this is going to get. Uh, you know, reduction to absurdity, that's what you call it when you, you, know, when you show that somebody's position leads to an inconsistency. That, that just tells you them that they've got something wrong somewhere. Right? It doesn't tell them what they've got wrong. Mm. So actually rethinking all of your original premises to see where you went wrong is the right response to it, rather than just like immediately assuming it's whatever your interlocutor thinks it is. And so I think that maybe at least, you know, with some of these guys, I mean, I, I don't want to exaggerate how many of them are winnable, but, uh, but maybe at least with some of them, pointing out that contradiction could start a process that could get them thinking about, okay, how do we want to resolve this, right? You know, do we, uh, if you don't like the idea that we should all be neoliberal nomads, and you might not, even though, you know, even though you, 
you like um, the idea of you know, gender hierarchy, maybe that seems to be you know, one of Peterson's big points of appeal. Would even you, Jordan Peterson fan, really, really want to go back to, you know, as you say, the 19th century or even the 1950s, you know, like really think about what that would entail, right? Is that something you really want? And at that point, we can pitch our solution to the inconsistency, which is, hey, how about having a society where people are economically enabled to make all sorts of life choices as they choose? Wouldn't that be nice? I, I've been wanting to. Have you guys met before? No, not not in the flesh. Well, here we are. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about this, actually, because I want to get into the Meidner plan, which is really important. And maybe you could outline it, Bhaskar, but I actually want to put this in conversation in the last segment before we go to the post game. I want to put this in conversation with the debunk that Ben and I did last week about would a greater, in a very broad sense, because I actually want to move, I think co-ops are cool, but I want to move well beyond co-ops. I want to move to stakeholdership. I want to, you know, because there, maybe that's also the wrong word, but just some idea of far more power over your economic life and far more leisure time and far more basic power yeah. to do what you will in an economic sense, right? So, but that being said, the debate that Ben had with uh, uh, Destiny, who's a you know a, a, a prominent uh, Twitch streamer, really, <laughs> which sounded funny. Yeah, that is that's actually what he is. The, no, Destiny's very. In fact, Destiny do, does a very good job at this stuff. He's in this uh, new New York Wait, Times piece. Twitch streaming is like the uh, gaming thing, he, right? He plays video games and talks what about politics. Game? I have no idea, dude. Don't ask. Don't. <laughs> don't I'm don't getting sorry, sorry, sorry. I don't want to derail. You're getting, you're getting so yeah, fucking know. sidetracked. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I mean, Bashkar I, is Larry Davining me here. <laughs> it's like Twitch stream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is he Twitch? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, but, I don't, I don't, I don't think I've played a video game since like Mario Kart. So I, I don't uh, like. I, I was doing, you know, like I. I, I wasn't I allowed to play video games because it would have gotten away with my astrology. I played video games as soon as I finished this book. I yeah. played Red Dead uh, Redemption. Was, well, there great. you go. That's yeah. very half of it was like you, you, you had a horse. It was your friend. You know, you fed it. You did chores. There was lots of chores. Anyway. Anyways, the I'm point done, of I'm the done. debate, Destiny did a great Astrology job. Astrology is really bad. Shut up. <laughs> Don't bring that nerd shit to my show. It's so, in, in, in less than the way we like it. He's <laughs> bad. Shut up. Whatever. So I will. Such I will. A Libra. I will. Such so what did you say? Said he's such a Libra. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. Libra. That was such a Libra yeah. thing to say. Um. Or whatever, whatever, whatever sign says. Yeah, like, I don't. I, I just don't think my personal branding can survive me sitting here listening to stuff about astrology and not saying anything. Well, no, it's all right. I mean, look, it, uh, even if you don't believe in it, it believes in you. <laughs> so, anyways, uh, uh, but I wanted to give Destiny props in the piece in the New York Times on YouTube radicalization, which we'll talk about another time. He was actually cited as an example of this kid exiting the uh, fascist right because of his debate skills. So, props to Destiny. The yeah, debate we, uh, got a DM from that kid a few months ago saying, you know, saying like, hey, you know, your videos helped me. So that was That's, cool. That is very yeah. cool. So yeah. this kid got turned on to all the good stuff. Maybe you got a DM from him too, right? Yeah, I've been DM with him for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's yeah. just like, 
Um, my See, DMs aren't open. I'm sure that's why, obviously. <laughs> so anyways. No, he uh, specifically yeah. told me that like uh, when he watched this show, that almost brought him back into the alt-right. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. But then this I said, well, look, I, look, I think yeah. you can believe that obviously – we should have a sense of the planetary alignment. And that yeah. doesn't mean that we should have a fascist you, government. L- listen, if the, the moon can impact the tides, you don't think it can fuck with your brain? Think about it. Yeah. Oh, think about it. See, it first. Uh, thank you. Thank you. You also don't want to expose somebody uh, that early in their re-education process to right-wing Mandela. Like. <laughs> really? You're going to watch Ben Badges? I'm a siren song. Yeah. I'm a siren. Yeah, that's put you to work at Madragon. You'll probably prefer to smoke weed and watch Rolling Stones <laughs> montage videos. <laughs> Meanwhile, Boschgard, his parents flee the fucking Caribbean via Snipeball territory so they can get a real fucking job. And he's running around True. talking about how they should turn the whole world into a fucking subpar of Caribbean economy. <laughs> fucking cocks. I miss doing that. <laughs> so... They were debating, can co-op worker-owned economies have an effect on the climate crisis? And I want to put that in relationship to outlining the Meidner plan. Fully automated luxury communism by Eric Bastani. Uh, oh, this is just a plug. But do you guys have any thoughts on that book? Um, so I, I, I like Aaron. I read most of the book. Uh, I would say, though, that sometimes it's easier to, like, Put forward a vision. I think Chomsky says something like this. I'm paraphrasing. Um, most things I say, I just assume Chomsky has said at one point or another. It's like the Simpsons rule, but for for just being Chomsky a leftist. Chomsky did it. Yeah, Chomsky <laughs> did it already. Uh, you know, it, it's easy to, to lay out a vision of, of 100 or 200 years down the road, but it's much harder and much more dangerous to say, actually, tomorrow we're going to institute capital controls. We're going to raise the marginal tax rate 70%. We're going to nationalize the banks. You know what I mean? Like, like that's much scarier to capitalism than like imagining 150 years down the road kind of like fucking like space mining asteroids and using you know so i think it's good to have the vision i think he's he's at least thinking many steps ahead which is which is useful so i enjoy you have a very big imagination annan good for you yeah but i'm yeah i think what boshkot is trying to say i'm a 20-year plan (laughs) socialist you know i'm i'm 29 years old i plan to make it till i don't know 79 that's my goal and uh boshkot is trying to figure out boshkot is trying to figure out how trinidad can make honda civics meanwhile (laughs) You're talking about asteroids beaming HBO into you while you don't work. We, we don't need to make Honda Civic. Have you ever seen a Trini Honda Civic? You know, we just soup that shit up yes. with some, uh, some rims, some, you know, some gold plating. You know. <laughs> well, I guess I would, uh, I don't know if you want to do a Clinton bit about this, but I want to triangulate a little bit between the two positions mm. uh, and say that... Uh, a bit. Is, Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, yeah, I, I don't yeah, want to stop yeah, this. Yeah. So. No, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, we but... need to find a third way in between <laughs> Boshkar's hollowed out imagination, which sees no real possibility other than souped up Norwegianism and the type of baseless fantasy and speculation of an Aaron Bostani or David Grishkin. Yeah. That's uh, what Ben Burge is trying to yeah, say. Okay, uh, I got it. I also like the word Norwegianism. It's nice. I'm just uh, kidding, man. I'm just joking. Come on, you could jump in at any time. Your, your mic is on. Um, 
But, well, I mean, I think that, you know, if you say, okay, you know, souped up Norwegianism is uh, is what we could. By the way, I'm sorry. I take no ownership of anything that yeah, any no, of my no, characters that say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just realized how polemical it actually was after I said <laughs> souped up Norwegianism. Yeah. Some, some idiot on that Twitter will catch run on. with that. That might catch yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, luckily this is in the, uh, you know. This is only time, among yeah. the good people. Yeah. But, and you know, if if I'm arguing with a certain kind of leftist, um, be like, man, what are you talking about? Like, we got a vision here about how we could completely expropriate the capitalist class. You know, I mean, can get a little, a little excited about that, right? Um, but if you think, okay, you know, souped-up Norwegianism is what we can have right now, right? <laughs> like, like if it. you if you imagine you know, a version of socialism that's just, you just extrapolate stuff that we've already beta tested in the real world. And then you say, we expand this out enough, we could actually completely get rid of the capitalist class, which would be nice. Um, and, you know, it would have, it would be different. It would be the same as what we've got in certain ways, it'd be very different from what we've got in certain ways. One thing I actually really liked about that first chapter was that there's still debate within the socialist movement about how much further we could go. That seems very historically realistic to me. Um, but I think that like you can start with that and then think about some of what was leading like Marx and critique of the Gotha program to imagine, you know, the crazy asteroid mining shit. You know, that's you know he doesn't mention asteroid mining explicitly. Well, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, the three of us had, uh, and that's another piece of sound we actually need to get to that Yang thing. Uh, which I, I sent you uh, over text. But uh, uh, three of us were uh, we uh, very enlightenedly uh, explained by a Yang supporter on Twitter today that Marx wasn't relative relevant to read because that was like 150 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, which, yeah, yeah, that was helpful. Which is yeah. uh, which totally is a, dated. Yeah, well, no, that's yeah. that's true. So I guess yeah. that cancels the rest of what I was going to say, which yeah. was just that uh, you know Marx's point is that once we have workers' control of production, automation doesn't mean the same thing it means under capitalism, right? That right. we can, that workers, mm -hmm. you know, even under the uh, the quasi-Norwegian, you know, version of what socialism could look like, you know, the uh, Norwegianism plus, uh, plus workers' control of firms uh, could respond to automation not by some people losing their jobs and other people working as hard as ever, but by everybody collectively voting themselves fewer hours and Marx's point is that if we kind of extrapolate further from that, then we could uh, you know, imagine kind of as an endpoint to this that eventually uh, there's less and less work that has to be done by people as we automate more and more. And uh, that as culturally there's been progress from capitalism, you know, people don't think in the same terms anymore. And so Marx thinks eventually you get to a point where um, what little work still has to be done by humans can just kind of be done by you know people pursuing their own interests, and uh, and what um, and that uh, there's enough abundance that people can just kind of take what they need. And even if you're not a hundred percent sold on the idea that we ever get all the way there, right? I think that it's still useful to have that kind of utopian vision. Even if, yeah. if you train for the Olympics, even if you don't make it, you're still in really good shape. Yeah, cool. yeah, exactly. And you know, if if even if we don't have like, you unless know, you're doing curling or some shit, you know, what I mean, like I imagine like you're just developing really weird muscles, like you know. Well, can I ask guys really yeah. briefly, and please, everybody? Actually, did you have something to add, Dave? Well, I just wanted to to plug too. You know, talking about the idea of utopian socialism is interesting. Matt and I 
have an episode on literary hangover we talk about oscar wilde's uh uh famous essay the man the soul of man under socialism mm -hmm. and it's very much like a utopian fantastic version of like what socialism is and i think it's important to have one like some ideal of like some kind of goal where you can just radically challenge all of the preconceived notions that you've been grown up with in our society um but then of course there is the danger obviously of implementation and oscar wilde's vision of socialism is so incoherent you know that it could be politically dangerous to obviously like adopt in any kind of reading group in a socialist organization and that's why what marx did was so important i think because marx people really forget like you know marx didn't invent you know socialism or communism he really was like hey you know these are some good orientations but you guys are not thinking scientifically you're not thinking politically you're not thinking materially and i'm going to put you know i'm going to try to provide some discipline and rigor to this thought so mm -hmm. I feel like finding a balance between the two is like, you know, the motivation, right? Which is like the utopian kind of sci-fi, you know, mm -hmm. whatever gets people to want this yeah. with the discipline. Yeah. Well, they, they have the, that, yeah. that line really that every, every yeah. Trotsky says, like, oh, well, you know, Lenin, when he was in Swiss exile and on the train back to Finland Station was reading Hegel and yada yada. I'm like, well, he should have been reading some fucking economics or some military <laughs> history, like as if that actually helped him as opposed to like some other like, I don't know, e-how, how to run like, you know, fucking socialist revolution. Whatever. You know, you know, you know who brought a lot of uh, a lot of discipline and clarity of thinking to things was Stalin <laughs> and, and also Mao. And I guess. No, I, I want to take this on for a couple of minutes because, I, uh, look, I do think that, you know, I was actually asked, and I don't want to really get it. I mean, it was a, it was a whole. There's a number of reasons why I sort of passed on it, but there was this there was this film pro, uh, TV guy, uh, producer in L.A. who wanted to make some type of like. You don't know, do nudes yet. No, gonna wait. Yeah. Build the brand a bit more. Then, no, you know? <laughs> no, it was yeah. The brand is strong. He wanted us. To, yeah, he basically he wanted me to go to a cave and, and talk to him about socialism. <laughs> no, he wanted to do some. He actually basically the reason was is actually he wanted to do some type of like two people meeting across the divide politics thing, which I already frankly I mean I think is you know pretty lame to begin with, and uh, and then it involves some even though and it's funny because ironically I mean I you know. I, I have no problem being a very clear and robust, robust critic of uh, many actions of the Venezuelan government, but I just was very uncomfortable with the sort of frame. Anyways, there's a lot of reasons, but the bottom line was, was here was a guy who was thinking a very mainstream, very pop culture way of the socialism word and why it scared people and, and so on. And what was funny was like, he really thought, Part of the reason I couldn't do it is he was so insistent that he was like a neutral arbiter. And I was like, well, I would really feel a lot more comfortable doing this if you understood that you weren't mm -hmm. and could own that. And then it would be a more coherent conversation because you're you're so entrenched in ideology, actually, that you don't see the ways in which, you know, the sort mm -hmm. of frame of this is an equal playing field. But anyways, and I'm busy and I, you know, I, whatever. But what about like, OK, it's ridiculous to smear a whole political tradition because of the crimes of mm -hmm. a couple of specific figures. And it's very easy to say, oh, well, when I say Marx, I'm talking about, you know, anti-imperial and anti-colonial movements or some incredibly important labor or political achievements, you know, all the things that we do say. But then there is like this countervailing thing, and it's a very effective propaganda tactic, which is that, okay, in the two largest countries where communism was achieved, there were these two leaders 
uh, that generated a huge amount of just like raw human, uh, you know, killing essentially. What's the sort of answer to that? Well, I think there is a, I think we have yeah. to say there, there has to be some sort of connection in that if you have an a ideology that has some sort of like arc and narrative and, and right. whatever, whatever else, then it's easy to justify short term violations of, of, of rights or, or things if it's in the service of a broader, longer term mission. Mm. But this is true of various types of socialism. It's also true of, of nationalism. It's tr it's the kind true of capitalism. impulse. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, right. even, even the idea that like, oh, you know, these uh, some, you know, Bengali, uh, you know, sweatshop workers have to be locked in their factory and they might just burn to death. But, you know, look at all this development and progress, right? It's yep. true of, of a lot of things. Um, I think this is why we need to say that, you know, the solutions to this isn't that fanciful. It's like we need a free civil society. We need like actually people to have a certain bedrock of individual rights that, that can't be in, infringed upon by a collective. In other words, I'm a socialist. I want to take away your private property rights to employ wage labor, but I don't want to take away your right to to live or to, you know, publish in a newspaper or whatever else. We should be clear about that sort of uh, sort of uh, uh, stuff. But, you know, they're, they're, we, we, we can't do the no true Scotsman thing where we say, right. oh, that's not socialism. Socialism is only the good things that I like because that's what libertarians do. And it comes across like so dumb when they're like, oh, well, that's not capitalism. That's crony capitalism. You well, know? That's also, and it's also the flip of the argument. One of the, my defenses and arguments against Islamophobia is like not that it's, you know, peaceful Islam is true Islam. The argument is that neither that, that it's like both peaceful cosmopolitan Islam and ISIS are both true Islam and they're both not true Islam because you have this complex ecosystem with a bunch of people making claims on it that it could be interpreted as textually valid depending on how you're reading it and what you're putting together. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that that's also just a better starting point too to just acknowledge the dynamism of something. What were you going to say, David? Oh, I mean, I just want to say, especially, you know, regarding Stalin, too, I think it's really important that we don't just overdetermine Stalin as a personality right. um, with what happened in the Soviet Union, which I feel like a lot of people, like, especially on the socialist left, tend to do, because they need to, I feel like a lot of people really need to recognize that the development of the Bolshevik Party and the decisions that were made that led up to Stalin you need to be able to make a distinction between the genesis that ends up in Stalin um, and not just say, oh, well, you know, what happened in the Soviet Union was just like the bad guy just happened to end well, up in power. But but but, so, but the bad guy did just happen to end up power in that the Soviet Union was re a rebounding state with an NEP and it was slowly developing and so on. I think this is where Marxist ideology actually plays a negative role in that the Bolsheviks were weren't content to say that the NEP would have lasted, would just last forever. And like, oh, this is just it. We're just in the NEP for a hundred years. Instead, they had to be like, there was a little crisis that be, oh, these peasants are hoarding and they're about to take power again. You know, I, I think, I think like, but, but Stalin was a rare figure where even Stalinist officials in the early years of collectivization, like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, his own wife committed suicide in protest of collectivization, you know? So, so, so I, I mean, I do agree, like Victor Serge has this great line about how the uh, germs of Stalinism existed within Bolshevism, but there were a great many other germs as well, right? You know, that right. wasn't it. 
Uh, and I think that's that's totally right, right? You know that like I think that uh, that you know that experiment did include a lot of much more positive potentials. At the same time, though, you know maybe it's just the reform trot in me, you know, like that you know that that I, I want to have kind of learned something from this. That like I think it's a little bit dangerous, and I'm sure people are going to hate this. Like the one thing that I, I most most reliably get negative YouTube comments about as if, you know, when I say bad stuff about the Soviet Union, you know, that's, uh, <laughs> right. but, uh, right. um, but I think that like a lot of people, you know, I used to be a Trotskyist. A lot of people who are in that tradition, I think have this weird game that they play with this where on the one hand, they want to give all the credit to the fact that the Russian revolution succeeded, whereas all these other revolutions failed, to Lenin having had the right political line and the Bolsheviks having had the right form of party organization. That, you right. know, it's this, the, this ideological correctness plus democratic centralism, you know, that's what explains it all. On the other hand, when they say, oh, well, but why did that degenerate into this nightmare that it did, you know? That's uh, all contingent. Oh, that's, yeah. that's all exactly, contingent. Yeah. That's all objective factors, you know, like that, like that's 100% these objective historical processes and 0% anything about the form of party organization or any of the decisions that the Bolsheviks made Or even the fact that Trotsky War. was a bit of a dick who alienated the people around him. Like, right. you know, Soviet bureaucrats didn't like Trotsky because they were cohering as their own kind of class with their own privileged set of interests, but also because he was a bit of a dick, you know, and then he alienated people, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's sure. I mean, like, you know, there's even stuff as contingent as that, but it's also like... Uh, you know, if you want to say, like, you know, you were saying earlier that it is really important that, like, we have these, like, uh, safeguards for civil liberties and things like that, you know, I think you have to acknowledge that there were a lot of things that were done. And, look, it's not a matter of judging anybody, right, you know, that, like, we're going to sit here in, you know, Brooklyn in 2019. Mean girls style. And, and say, yeah. It's not happening. <laughs> well, <laughs> I wouldn't have done that, you know. Like, that's not the point, right? The point is just that, they haven't had that historical lesson. We we can learn something from it. Absolutely. And right. And David, the, go ahead. Yeah. Oh no. I mean, I was I was just jumping in to agree. I mean, there's absolutely is a historical lesson that we can look at, and I just think it's important not to disavow it from the tradition. Mm. Not that that's like we run on and want people to be like, oh, you know, we're trying to bring this to you know the U.S. <laughs> today. But it's like recognizes that like this was a distinct left socialist tradition, and that there are important lessons to learn from the Soviet Union, including also understanding factors that you know. A lot of the stuff that happened with Stalin was, of course, like an overreaction. But there were people, even within the Bolshevik Party mm. under Stalin, who mm. were, you know, trying to undermine the revolution and stuff like that. And recognize that there are all these external factors too within the Soviet Union mm. um, that are really made. Like you don't get a good government when you have the entire world basically trying to, dis you know, destroy your government from the outside no. either. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. But at the same time, like if we're telling people, hey, uh, we want to try this again. Uh, then that's going to be, I think, a much more effective pitch if it's not that, like, we're blaming it just on external factors. It's like, oh, wow, you know, like, lots of opposition from the capitalist world. Well, I mean, like the good th good thing we know yeah. that won't happen again. Go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, even, like, the Cuban embargo, right? So, in other words, if you're talking about the development of Cuban socialism in the 70s and, and 80s, and you're focusing just on the eff uh, negative economic effects of the U.S. embargo, you're not actually weighing empirically what are the effects of the U.S. embargo versus the subsidies from the Soviet mm. bloc. And in fact, at least in the 70s and 80s, like the subsidies from the Soviet bloc probably outweighs the effect of the U.S. embargo. Obviously, I'm against the embargo. I'm very, very soft as 
viewers of the show know on on Castro and Cuban communism in particular. But you know, we have to have we have to figure out what's our rhetoric and what's our like what are we well, focusing on? What's yeah. the what's the actual kind of like you know? Well, this is empirical. I think in, to me this also relates to how we talk about liberalism because you know there's this great liberation going on, particularly even just like in much more relative conversations. Like no, like you i support bernie i don't read like you know middle brow trash and like oppose medical care for all i'm not a liberal i'm you know i'm a mm. social democrat i'm a progressive whatever uh even down to much more substantive critiques of wait a second maybe actually an ideology that is completely privileged sort of like individual preference however it, which is a problematic construction to begin with over everything else not in this like limited but vital sense we're talking about which i'm going to get to in a second but that like no there's actually real problems here that you can draw a line uh if you want to and it's, this isn't just sort of you know uh, this is like an actual line between some ideas from john locke and like the problems of you know silicon valley mm -hmm. and you know fragmentation and these like and so that the, that that stuff is on the table and being critiqued and we're reorienting ourselves to this much broader mm -hmm. political and intellectual life is an undoubted positive at the same time sometimes when i see people particularly with you know when i can kind of get annoyed with my like oh, okay here comes like the larper stuff it's like you know if I mean, and even relative to places that we have a, you know, a huge amount of sympathy for, which we do for Castro and Cuba, you know, specifically the notion that somebody in a, in, you know, in, in let's keep it Brooklyn in 2019 is anywhere remotely, not even forget, even ideologically desirous, even capable or willing of, of negating their subjectivity to the amount that would be demanded in a political context is neither desirable, it's also delusional. Right. So I think that we need to, you know, one of the tactics that I've tried to argue, which other people, which actually I think Bernie's sort of getting on now in a more limited way, which is actually to tell liberals like, look, a lot of your stuff is bullshit, but the stuff about your speech, your expression, your assembly, that is actually pretty bedrock. And I do think everybody in the world wants some version of that, even if, you know, right. And uh, and the only way to achieve that is actually through some type of socialist path. Like you've had an opportunity to try to safeguard that. And it's actually clearly just as labor rights are actually always under threat under capitalism. Mm -hmm. So are these actual liberal rights as well. Well, it's not that we're against, let's say, a free press. It's that we wonder how real a free press is in a country like India, where 40 percent of the population is illiterate. Let's let's uh, run through some sounds. So first, let's start. Uh, from the bottom and go to the top and then I, let's start with uh, Andrew Yang. So I just want to say, but when I set this clip up, this is real. I mean, first of all, Andrew Yang is all sorts of frustrating to me and we will tee off on him more broadly and get a bunch of whiny comments about it. But I want to say that what is really starting to disturb me is that in a totally non- identitarian way and certainly you know it there is a certain type of woke discourse that andrew yang is responding to which i think in fact people like sanders do it just by centering mass class struggle across all lines are answering but there is like some sort of like 
you know, the dumb take on Twitter, like, oh, I don't want to hear about the opioid crisis. Or, you know, if I see a homeless white person, I spit on them because they're white and they're homeless. How ridiculous, you know, some very bad and toxic uh, and economically illiterate and, you know, stupid, horrible takes. So when Andrew Yang says, like, we should care about a a bus driver in uh, a truck driver in Wisconsin, I'm like, 100% along with everybody else who's working. But then he does do these things like randomly mention the white birth rate. Why? In fact, I would say if your answer to not wanting to center, you know, if you want to just center economics, then why are you concerned about anybody's birth rate, right? Like very weird stuff. And so there's this and unnecessary stuff. So here's this clip with Mehdi Hassan in his podcast. I want to be really clear and then we'll tee off on it that from listening to this whole show, I I don't think that, I think Andrew Yang is dog whistling, but I don't think that, I don't read that that's his intention. Although even in this clip, what he's doing here is in and of itself ludicrous, absurd and dangerous, but he's also undermining those of us who actually do have to come into the discourse sometimes and say, wait a second, you're actually erasing a huge amount of human suffering and important politics because of your like performativity and God forbid political strategy. This is a disaster. Check him out on Mehdi Hassan on Deconstructed. I'm wondering what it is that attracts neo-Nazis to your campaign. You're a progressive Democrat. Well, you know, so I, I believe that the problem that the truck driver is facing and the problem that the neo-Nazi is facing, uh, it's a disintegrating way of life. I mean, like, obviously, the vision of the future is nothing we want. Sorry, a neo-Nazi's way of life is disintegrating. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, they look up, and this is obviously, this is just me projecting, because I don't know what the heck goes through <laughs> other people's minds. Um, but if they looked up and they said, hey, Donald Jeez. Trump's the answer, and they're like, whoa, wait, Donald Trump's not necessarily the answer. I, I think he just missed, he just bungled something, uh, you know, he, he, I, it, how could you? No, 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 Blashgar, Let's be a little tough here. How could you, even if you had to make a very specific point, including points that do will get people to jump on you, like, hey, you know what? There were some people who voted for Donald Trump who subjected to his scam uh, and believed his promises. We need to migrate them back through an economic argument. There are some people like that, and they're very important geographically. Even if you're making that argument. Why would you like if I'm concerned about accurately representing a, you know, and of course, you know, in his mind, it's all about the robots, which I guess we can get to in a second. But if I'm like, hey, this poor guy, like, you know, there's opioids and a robot's about to take his job and fuck his wife. Would I compare him to a neo? Like, what is the thought process there by which you can't just say, well, first of all, Richard Spencer obviously is not some suffering worker. He's a scumbag trust fund baby promoting Nazism. So I disavow him and or a white ethno state. And now here's my real concerns. You know, because he's not actually a progressive. It's this post ideological kind of kind of thing. And I think he was trying to express this vague post ideological thing. And he stumbled into saying something racist by accident. Well, you know, which is. Well, yeah, I mean, no, no, yeah, for yeah. whatever the, the thing motive, is, Yang cares, too, yeah. is that. So, yes, like, you know, let's not take him at the worst cynical version that he's actually trying to pander to Nazis and like racists. 
if you listen to that interview, you listen to Yang talk about racism in the United States, it's very clear that he thinks that like working class people across the country are all Nazis. And basically, that's what he means when he's talking about, you know, these people are seeing their way of life, you know, go bad. And that is even like that's like so offensive to me as well. Is, How explain what you mean by that? He thinks that most people across so the country. So when he share, says like he talks about a truck driver and he melds that with a neo Nazi. Well, that's example. my problem. Well, he was prompted to say neo Nazi by the question. That, that's one thing because I I saw that quote and I was just like and I didn't actually hear the clip and it wasn't. In other words, like I think it does matter the fact that like the word neo Nazi was mentioned before and he's like clearly an inexperienced politician and not a particularly smart guy. And he's asked oh, this question. True. He's panicking. He's I was like, about to say, you'll get just, all of you know, the pro Yang comments yeah. in the video, but they just plummeted. Yeah. No, but I no, but no, I'm sorry. Even it shouldn't be that difficult to say, you know, Medi, I, t I cannot tell you why some group would cynically come onto my message. How he could even, you know, he could even say, look, there's some people that might not necessarily have as progressive attitude as you or I, but I don't consider them to be Nazis. They're not Nazis. Well, and I want to talk about their concerns. There is a million ways he could have done that without saying a bus, a truck driver and a neo-Nazi. Their lifestyles are both being undermined. That's an immoral Insane mm -hmm. and reckless kind. Yeah, I'm just, I'm still fixated on the uh, the guy who's afraid that the robot's going to take his job and fuck his wife. Uh, that's, uh, Actually, there, there will hey, be that's jobs. The, there will be jobs creating the wife fucking robots. I, got, so, I, mean, I, I don't I, get the. Like, I got to figure so out. You, yeah, that's. Well, but ever, they'll be, but they'll be disassembled in China. You know, I got to figure ever out. Ever seen the old uh, Mr. Show skit, the racist of the year 3000? You know, the guy sitting at the bar is like, you know. My daddy always told me not to trust a man who was made out of gas, you know. <laughs> not you, Gleep Glop. You're one of the good ones. <laughs> Actually, maybe that is, the, that is, can we do the Andrew Yang impression now? Or it's, I can't, almost there where it's just like, what their concern is, is that everyone's saying that they're a racist, but what they're really, because what's going to happen in 2025 when Uber creates the robots that will fuck these guys' wives? <laughs> That's going to create a whole other level of problems in the Midwest, and I'm concerned that we're not thinking strategically here. Another a, huge but, problem with Andrew Yang, just to put on the table before we, you guys jump on it, we'll get off of it, though. But especially if you're a fan, and listen to this whole Mehdi Hassan interview, because, you know, that there's a reason they clipped it, and I do think that's very uh, disturbing and usually undermining for those of us who actually do want to assert class politics. But the other incredible thing is this move he does between like it's all robots and just and direct crash transfer and put, you know, put uh, uh, CEOs in jail if they commit, a, you know, if they need a bailout. And then on the other hand, like, oh, I don't think a wealth tax is very realistic. Yeah. <laughs> so and and oh, and if you follow the trajectory of all of his thought patterns, it will go to. Well, I mean, if you do a wealth tax, the wealthy people will just sequester their wealth. So you can't really figure that out. That mm -hmm. you just have to deal with. Robots taking <laughs> all of our jobs and having some type of like direct cash transfer, that we can figure out. But all of the rules of capitalism, all of the mm -hmm. basic power disparities, they're locked in place. And I, I, and that's one of the reasons I find people's interest in him. I mean, it's really, you know, it's frustrating because it's obviously a lot of people who aren't that informed kind of jumping on a sci-fi thing. But it's also like it really shows how much work 
capital has done to really depress people's sense of possibility. It's this kind of Blade Runner plus safety net future where it's yes. like yeah. it's like we're going to live in this crazy unequal world. It's like San Francisco, but sped up 20, 30 years in the future with probably the authoritarian government structure of Singapore. Right. Um, but we're going to make sure that you at least have some money that you could buy your shitty space food. Exactly. I mean, that's it's like, well, the really concerns me, Mehdi, is that in 2032, then that's when the robot algorithm will be able to not only, I mean, think about it when a blue collar guy's wife, but also his sister is having sex with a robot. And those are the kind of conversations that we're going to need to have for the future. Well, and also the, the how he gets caught up in what his, his idea of what's possible is he's his main a thing, the UBI, right. the Yang Bucks, which is like a thousand dollars for anybody, Your unless you get social or uh, disability payments or food stamps or different programs like that. So it's not even universal, and it's not universal because he says we need to do something about like keeping being able to pay for it. And, and to like, be really clear, my understanding is that it's an opt-in, opt-out, right? Yeah. So in other words, you can you know, and and that's and that's so, and I don't think it's intentional, but that's so that reminds me of what predator landlords do in this city, which is like, you can go to somebody who is actually sitting on like an incredible apartment deal. Like they have a rent controlled apartment in some nice neighborhood in Brooklyn, which they can af actually humanly afford a completely unheard of thing in today's world. But they're also broke because either they're a pensioner or they're underemployed, whatever. And so a landlord and there are deals like this can go and basically say like, I'll give you 5,000 or 10,000 bucks, which is, you know, relative to a rent stabilized apartment in New mm -hmm. York is nothing. I mean, it is, it is, it is, it is literally the functional. I'm not saying it's not a real amount of money, but mm -hmm. relative to housing security in this city, that is nothing. And yet people need to take it in some instances because they literally need to take it because they have no money. And to me, that just seems like the policy equivalent. Like if you're relying on disabilities, food stamps, and other vital services just to survive, contrary to popular belief about how generous these things are, you might be exactly the type of person who can be hustled into what ends up being a loss for you because you literally need cash to buy groceries. So I, I well, just even find the whole setup so cynical. Even in a sort of regular scenario, like let's the average uh, disability payment is $1,200 a month or thereabouts. So they right. always take that, right? Like say right. that's for their handicapped transportation or whatever. So let's say this person also has non-disabled friends, right? right? And all their non-disabled friends are like, hey, let's go to the coast this weekend with our Yang bucks and go crazy. <laughs> it's like, oh, sorry, I can't. I was paying for my wheelchair, so I'm just going to stay home. Like right. that's that's what that does every single month for those that's people. Exactly and also right. what kind of sicko adds that cash? caveat it's just like oh you know i have this like i'm a long shot fringe candidate i have my 15 minute of shame uh, you know I've, I've, I've fame <laughs> and also shame um uh, but you know <laughs> let me just make sure that in my hypothetical vision of the future disabled people don't get as much money as everyone else <laughs> well we actually we actually crunched numbers look at the numbers yeah. and um Disabled people who I have a lot of respect for. Uh, my mom's friend was actually disabled. and uh, But what we discovered is that disabled people, for whatever reason, and it might be because of a genetic precursor, they're a lot less concerned about having robots fuck their spouses. <laughs> uh, so we calculated it. And uh, let me ask you this. Uh, have you ever have you ever been afraid of a disabled Nazi? Probably not. So uh, probably not worried yeah. about it. Yeah, probably not. I mean, one thing, you see the big black shirt, uh, brown shirts, and they're, 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 they're big husky guys, and you're kind of scared, and you're like, oh, whoa. But then you see 
he's some guy he's, he's willing around saying, you know, hail Hitler. And it's like, okay, you know, I wish you wouldn't say that, but you're not so scared. So that was the thinking behind that. Yeah. I mean, if they, like, like, all right. So, I mean, whatever. Like, maybe he, maybe like it's just a matter of Andrew Yang being dumb and like he, you know, he just kind of stumbled. Or a secret libertarian plant. You know, uh, <laughs> but like, if the Nazi thing is revealing, I think it's about what the point of the Yang bucks are. That like it's not, um, you know, it's not that he's actually concerned with this vague mass of working class truck drivers and neo Nazis, you know, as uh, uh, you know, as like people he actually identifies with and like wants to promote their interests, and you know, uh, he thinks that they can like win in any sense. It's that, like, really, like, it's not even, you know, like, under the disguise of the cyberpunk, what it is is, like, the late Roman Republic and the early empire where you had, because of consolidation of big farms, you had this big population of people who used to be small farmers who are, like, just hanging out in Rome being destitute. Right. And so, like, what, like, Augustus and his successors end up doing is they impose this bread ration, uh, which is, like, you know, it's a pretty miserable existence, uh, but, like, it's something... That it's the kind of thing you come up with if you see these people not as like a historical actor that can like do things in its own interest that you might identify with, but you see them as like a social problem. Rome was Earth thousands. Earth threat. Rome was thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. We're talking about robots. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I, I just I was informed that Marx was irrelevant because that was 150 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Talking about Rome. Yeah, well, dude, you they know. didn't play video games. <laughs> no, I, no, I know, right? You know, they but like, had less hungry children too in the city too. By the, by the sound of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. You know, and that's. Uh, but I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, if you just see this as a social problem to be technocratically solved, right? right? You know, it's like, oh, all right, we'd feel bad if like all these people died. I guess. You well, know, and that's that, what. Boshkar said they're also a threat. That might cause some social right, chaos. Right. So, oh. like, we'll but, have something that they can live on. Do we actually think that he has tons of neo-Nazi supporters? Or or is the no. supporter... No. First of all, he doesn't have tons of supporters, He doesn't period. have tons of supporters, period. Uh, then he has some alt-right-ish curious kids who are on those channels, but also, like, some parts of his message. So they're mixing their their symbols or whatever else. Uh, Then you have some like liberal journalists playing up the Nazi angle because also part of it is like a segment of the liberal elite in this country wants to believe that the primary threat is the Nazis. So while you're talking about Howard Schultz, there's Nazis everywhere. Right. When in fact, no, there are not Nazis everywhere. And in fact, the primary threat are capitalists. And the primary threats are like, you know, Diamond and, and Howard Schultz and... Yes, Donald Trump, but you know it's it's it's, well, it's just you know banal normal people that you could have at your dinner table for like fifteen minutes. You know, probably not more than that. But I have a, I have some numbers on this from a Yang supporter who I was arguing with two hours ago. Yes, please. Uh, and he said uh, um, we did a poll on this in the Yang Facebook group, <laughs> and only like twenty percent were right wing. Uh, by the way, right wing appeal should be a plus because Trump is dangerous. That's what this person said. So, okay. Uh, but if we, but, his, but people are talking about that. But if you look at the numbers, um, and we were crunching some numbers, and as early as uh, 2032, there's going to be a new self-generating robot that can perform oral sex on both men and women. So even if you're committed to a broader set of transgender rights, it's something you're going to be really need to be worrying about. Because could you imagine if some guy, he's a milk truck driver, and first the robot takes his, <laughs> his truck. 
And then he's going down on his wife better than he ever could. So I think we need to get a lot more serious about long-term. <laughs> that's, by the way, that's another thing, too, is that uh, he, one of his explanations of why why uh, breaking up tech monopolies wasn't really part of it was because, you know, you don't use services like Bing anyway. So we need to be realistic. <laughs> of course, not like. Actually, but, yeah. fair enough. Fair well, enough. no, but I that's think not some that's, natural monopolies there. The, you know? No, because you're, you're, you're literally no. Control. If you bro- no, 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 that's not the point. If that, you but... took, you, which part? That it's a natural monopoly. That the uh, that like breaking it up uh, is only going to go so far. What we need to do is socialize it. Well, I agree with that in the long term, but that's also, but like that's a that's not true because in a, in a relative sense either. Because if you said. Facebook can't own Instagram. Like there's monopolies of the monopolies right now. No, so I mean, even by the terms of that, that's just a stupid argument. I mean, fa- fa- Bing is actually not part Facebook. of the ultimate monopoly right now. I mean, fa- Facebook it might be not, good not, that Facebook, Facebook owns Instagram if Facebook was a state-run company, and that actually the yeah. integrations and in the kind of, there might be certain things we like about it. Yeah, we, we get Whatever, that. Right? That's that's where yes, yes. And I mean, I mean, we, I mean, we all get Jesus Christ. You guys are sorry. Are we sorry? I mean, yeah. I persnickety it's motherfuckers. It's Can we focus Okay. This this is, is Jesus Christ. Naked, we're going to go do Joe Biden segment in a minute. Do you guys have secret elements of the bankruptcy bill that were actually good for socialism <laughs> that I should know about uh, before uh, we do this? I'll, Jesus I'll brainstorm. But like in all seriousness, yes. I, I, I do think that this exposes like this is like a, something we're seeing in real time as like a real exposure of the limits of liberalism because – you know, the sort of maximal liberal solution to concentrated corporate power is, oh, I guess we're going to have to break them up. And that's mm-hmm. and that's running up against right. something that, sure, you could have YouTube not be owned by Google. And that would be, you know, that would be better. But just one company owning YouTube mm-hmm. is already insanely concentrated power. Yeah. And we don't really have a good way of breaking up YouTube. Like, And, the, you, and it, you'd be better off working for Walmart than a bodega. You know, anyone who's... Actually, seen labor practices oh, in bodegas. Dissing our yeah. Yemeni friends at our local bodegas. How dare you? <laughs> like, but then, what if uh, you know people aren't thinking in their own self-interest? Because what if in uh, 2050 uh, a robot could actually write both of your books and and fuck your wives? So maybe if we're thinking of more long terms. <laughs> Well, by all right, I think we have to do. I definitely, I'm, I'm, definitely have to do. I'm going to be retired from both those things. You know, like, <laughs> I'm just taking it easy. You know? <laughs> I just want to say, first of all, first and foremost, thanks to each and every one of you. I have enormous appreciation. I'm so honored. I'm genuinely humbled by the community that we've built. I want to say that everybody on this stage, I value beyond words. Alona. Thank you so much. I can't wait to have you back on. I really miss you. Matt Binder, you're awesome. We go back from the beginning, and it's amazing watching you grow and doing this awesome podcast and continuing the video work. Doomed. Ben Burgess is a fucking master, a good friend. Harvey K, we learn from so much and we love. I'm so glad that Brandon Sutton is a friend. The discourse is amazing. It's the smartest thing out there. It's Van Jones now. Matt and David, I love you guys. I could not do it without you. And I just want to say, before we play this clip, and this clip you've seen before, it's it's just a a tone I want to set before we come back out on stage uh, and say bye while we're standing up here. But... 
Last year, this was the first live show we did was a year ago at this venue, and we filled it. There's more people here this year. We're going to multiple venues across the country, and things are really growing, and it's really important. We actually play a, a real role in this process, and it's dependent and connected with all of you, so thank you. And thank, thank you, you for Michael. everybody who's spreading the word. And I also want to say last year, I talked about Lula. Lula was in jail. I, I had a person who contacted me from a congressional office who said, I like your show, what can we do? I'm not really sure. There's very little energy about this. And look, things are still very bad in Brazil, here, everywhere else. But a year later, Lula's out, and I went and fucking interviewed him. In Sao Paulo, Lula Livre. Hey. That would not happen without all of you. And I just want, we're actually gonna play a clip in a minute. We're gonna move the couch so you can see the subtitles. But this is the same speech that Lula gave the day before he turned himself in for this totally corrupt process. And I want people to remember this attitude and feel this momentum and feel this optimism and feel this real realness about how dark things can be but also light on the other side. So we're gonna set this up. We gotta start moving the couch, if we could get off the couch so people could read the subtitles. Also, Michael wants all you to know that he interviewed Lula. That's I did really interview Lula. All about. <laughs> That's a major honor. Thanks all of you. And so what we're gonna do, and also after the show, there's merch for sale, I guess, because I won't say that on the other side, but we're gonna come out and say bye to everybody and, and connect with you guys right after this is over, but we do wanna play this clip and thank all of you so much. We'll be right back. Não adianta tentar evitar que eu ande por esse país, porque tem milhões e milhões de Lula, de Bolo, de Manuela, de Dilma Rousseff para andar por mim. Não adianta tentar acabar, sabe, com as minhas ideias. Elas já estão pairando no ar e não tem como prendê-las. Não adianta tentar parar o meu sonho, porque quando eu parar de sonhar, Eu sonharei pela cabeça de vocês e pelo dono de vocês. Não adianta achar que tudo vai parar o dia que o Lula tiver infarte. É bobagem, porque o meu coração baterá pelo coração de vocês e são milhões de corações. Os poderosos podem matar uma, duas ou três rosas, mas jamais conseguirão deter a chegada da primavera e a nossa luta é em busca da primavera.
All right. Assembling those clips that we just watched was painful, but I also loved rewatching it all and getting a chance to re-experience uh, some of my favorite on-screen conversations uh, with Michael. A lot of my favorite off-air ones uh, were ones that uh, can't be repeated uh, or even summarized uh, on-air. If anything, he was even funnier off-air than he was on-air, but often in a hilariously inappropriate way. Uh, and uh, he was fairly disciplined about how much of that side of him he showed on-air, although in a very deliberate way, he was starting to be much more public, uh, and much more pointed in his public criticisms of left moralism canceling in the excesses of woke culture over the course of the final months of his life. Uh, some of that showed up in his book Against the Web, uh, and by that last month, uh, June 2020, he was doing things uh, like bringing up the Harper's letter in his interview with Stavi from Cumtown. For a long time, by the way, my go-to description of uh, TMBS was that if you wanted to get a sense of what it's like, some of Michael's recent guests included uh, Noam Chomsky, Stavi from Cumtown, and Cornell West. And in that conversation, I remember him saying flatly that you know anyone who uh, had a problem with the letter, you know, just had a problem with free speech. Uh, and some people who were otherwise eager to canonize him as St. Michael uh, seem to want to forget that, uh, that side of, uh, of his politics. You know, you know, they want to forget the comments like that. They want to forget that he blurbed canceling comedians, that you can find old clips of him from the Majority Report uh, criticizing call-out culture years before the phrase cancel culture was even coined, uh, or... Uh, that uh, he continued to embrace people like Crystal Ball or Glenn Greenwald years after big chunks of the left had written those figures off as crypto right-wingers. He also embraced tons of figures who other people on the left think are just libs and, you know, and, and, or, you know, NATO shills or whatever. Uh, those were, uh, those were all part of the group of people who he, he saw, uh, he saw something valuable in. And uh, thinking, you know, thinking about uh, thinking about that, um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, even when I think about, you know, conversations with him um, about people who, you know, he maybe was getting sick of uh, or uh, or or he did you know, have a problem with now who, you know, I might continue to defend. Uh, no, I'm not going to name names. Probably not the names you're thinking of. Uh, in any case, uh, you know, I, I think that um, one of the, you know, I don't want to get into any drama. That's exactly the opposite of what I want to do here. Um, what I do want to note, though, are two closely related things. Uh, one is that one of the reasons that Michael could sometimes get away with uh, takes that, you know, anyone else would have been, you know, canceled by some of his audience for was that it was so obvious to anybody who wasn't just a robot that Michael was truly and very deeply a good person whose priorities were exactly what they should be. It was manifestly obvious that he was compassionate and thoughtful and that he never sought out controversy and drama for the sake of controversy and drama. He was pretty free about dunking on reactionary jackasses like Sam Harris or Jordan Peterson. Uh, he'd train his considerable talents uh, as a, a comedian on them without a second thought, 
But at least as a general rule, when he did decide uh, to weigh in on intra-left controversy, he'd be very careful. He'd be very deliberate. And he'd focus on the substance of the issue instead of taking pot shots at individual media figures. More than once since he died, I've heard people in left media who he criticized on air saying that they liked watching those segments where he criticized them because they could tell that he'd listened carefully to their arguments and he wasn't being dismissive. Um, he critiqued the left because he wanted the left to win, because he cared. He cared very deeply about ending poverty and economic inequality and imperialist wars abroad and unjust social hierarchies at home. In an article that we worked on together for Esquire, uh, something that they solicited but they didn't end up publishing, he talked about growing up in a family where they'd sometimes face eviction, where he'd worry that other people were watching and judging at the store when his mom would pull out her bridge card. Uh, if you don't know what a bridge card is, that's what's generally known as food stamps, to pay for their groceries. Coming from that background is part of why he never had time to pretend that he didn't care about his success in his media career, but it's also why social politics were visceral and uh, personal to him. He never wanted anyone else to have to deal with any of that garbage ever again. He cared about winning. That's why he hated cancel culture, woke moralism, all that garbage, because even beyond thinking that's a terrible way for humans to interact with each other, because he knew, it's because he knew that we could never build a mass movement. It's also why he was irritated uh, by other people on the left. He was careful and strategic how he publicly weighed in on those disagreements. He could be an extremely colorful and entertaining hater in private, you could probably imagine, uh, but he knew that everyone on the left scratching each other's eyes out over disagreements didn't advance the cause. He would have hated the way that left media has been all of this year. And whatever you think about what he would have thought about any particular controversy, you have to know that. And one thing I really want to emphasize at the very end here before we go to the post game, you know, I'm going to talk to Joshua Con Russell. We're going to watch a few more clips is that none of this that I'm describing as a matter of Michael having been too wonderful a person for negative feelings, you know, that he was just too enlightened a bodhisattva or something like that. He was very far from that. And frankly, I hate the way that some people want to turn the warm, funny, flawed, complicated, and consummately human person that I was lucky enough to have as a close friend and collaborator for those few years into a two-dimensional plaster saint, too boring to be interesting. Um, this is the guy who, after I started to regularly meet him for, uh, for dinner in, in Brooklyn, you know, back when I lived in New Jersey, um, you know, I, I was doing this for a few months before, you know, before I started actually, you know, crashing his apartment. And, uh, and when I did start uh, going over to his apartment to, to work or, you know, I'd spend the occasional, you know, uh, evening there, weekend there, you know, after, uh, after my wife and I moved to Georgia, I realized that the place... Uh, that he uh, that he would always suggest that we uh, we meet up for uh, for dinner, uh, and by the way, he was always at least a few minutes late. Uh, was um, was literally next door to his apartment. Um, this is the guy who, when I introduced him to a uh, friend of mine uh, from uh, from graduate school, 
uh, we'll call the friend Baruch. That's not his name, but uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, I was out having drinks with this friend from graduate school, uh, and and I invited Michael along, and uh, and uh, Baruch's wife ended up, uh, you know, sort of drunkenly saying something positive about Elizabeth Warren, and Michael got into a huge argument with her that was like actually kind of a problem at that time, uh, you know, with me and uh, and Baruch. Uh, this, this is, this is guy, you know, this is not St. Michael. Uh, he was something that was, um, that was vastly, thank you, Eric, uh, that was vastly more useful than a saint. He was a thoughtful and strategic leftist who cared about our getting our shit together so that we could actually win. So... That's really the the point I wanted to end with. Left is best.